Well, it's good to see you, church family. It is October 21st, which means we are just 10 days away from Halloween. Can I get an amen? Right? 10 days away before we all dress up in strange outfits and give each other candy, right? I don't understand it, but it's something we like to do, and, and I'm all in favor of it. I, and it's another time of the year where I'm always reminded that Reese's Peanut Butter Cup is, in fact, the best candy out there. If you like anything else, then you just haven't discovered it yet, right? I mean, it is the best one. For sure. And so that's usually the one that I try to dig through all my kids' candy and hoard whenever they come home. Now, when you think about Halloween, uh, this is the time of year, especially for me and my family, maybe you've grown out of this at this point, but this is where you begin to think through costumes and you think through what you're going to dress up as and all those different things. And, and I really kind of determined that there are two different types of costumes that are out there, right? You've, you've got the scary type of costume. And, and this is the, the type of costume that's going to be your witches, it's going to be your skeletons, your zombies, things like that. And when you choose this route for a costume, all you really care about is creating something as scary as possible, right? I mean, it's just the, the more uh, intimidating, the more the cost, uh, scary it is, that's kind of what you're after. The other side of the equation when it comes to costumes is something that's maybe more character-driven, maybe it's more in line with some form of a profession, something like that. Where here, you want to create something that's maybe original, kind of creative, authentic. This is where you begin to really study. How did that person dress in that movie? Or what does a fireman really wear? What does a police officer really wear? What does is, what is an army man really wear? And you try to create that in your own costume. Well, I was, I was thinking about that this past week because I, I started looking into the history and the progression of the uh, uniform for the United States military, which is a really interesting progression if you've ever stopped and looked at it because it starts with, with people just trying to choose their hunting shirts to distinguish themselves from the British, which then ultimately ends up with this really high advanced digital camouflage that we have today. Kind of came across this picture that shows you this, this progression of how things have developed. And, and I was reading this article in Business Insider that kind of highlighted some of these distinctions. If you, if you think about the Revolutionary War, soldiers ultimately ended up going with this, this theme of blue, and it kind of was that contrast to the redcoats, correct? And that, that blue color uh, really kind of stuck through the, the military uniforms in the early part of, of the iterations of the uniform. And, and you think about all the different intricacies and how it helped create those distinguishing elements, not just from their enemies, but even within their own countrymen. Uh, you get to 1821, and there's this new hat, this kind of bell cap, I think is what they call it, and it has this hole at the, at the top where you can see this feather that's placed in there, and there'd be different types of colors to distinguish the role that you played within the military. If you were uh, infantry, artillery, things along those lines. Uh, eventually, they, they got rid of the feather, which I thought was a good call, and, and went to more of the accent marks within the uniforms, and again, you could kind of see the reds, the blues, you'd see the shoulder uh, wings there that would recognize rank and, and authority. But then you get to kind of the turn of the 1900s, and I guess khaki and greens and browns kind of got introduced, and, and, and that really begins to be the, the dress color when you get to the, the first couple of world wars, and you see a change in headgear with the Brody helmet and things like that, and, and things begin to develop. But then you get to the Korean and Vietnam Wars, and that's when camouflage really begins to take off with the, with the standard dress for the military. And, and really, that's kind of been the standard approach really ever since then with different iterations. You kind of have a desert color for what we saw with Desert Storm in the 90s and even through the war on terrorism, the early parts of the 2000s, and now this, this digital camouflage. So it's a really interesting 
progression when you think about it. And, and it really is it's fascinating to me how it really achieves multiple goals. Now, when I was reading this article, the one word that kind of leapt off the page for me was the word distinguish. Right? It was over and over again. It was talking about how these uniforms would, would function in order to distinguish something, which means to set apart, right? to be seen as different. And, and that was something that these uniforms had obviously achieved. Number one, you were trying to distinguish yourself from your enemies, right? that we, we were different than those who we were opposing, but you also could see that it helped distinguish yourself within your own countrymen, right? that, that we were the ones who had set, ourselves our, set aside ourselves to go and fight, to, to, to set ourselves apart for something bigger than ourselves. And so it was a really key distinction that these uniforms really helped convey. And it's interesting because when you think about seeing somebody dressed in any sort of U.S. military uh, uniform, you, you can immediately know part of their convictions and part of their beliefs, right? You know that this is an individual, man or woman, who has decided to offer themselves to something greater than who they are, right? They're offering themselves to something bigger. They're willing to sacrifice their lives for the benefit of others. And so typically when we encounter someone who is dressed in these military uh, uniforms, what do we typically do? We we express some form of gratitude. Thank you for your service, right? Just by the way in which they dress, because we know by their uniform that they have distinguished themselves based on some of these convictions and these beliefs that they hold dear, that they're willing to offer themselves for the benefit of others. Well, that to me becomes a great illustration for this transition that we're, we're trying to achieve today. Right, the last two months, we've talked about how our, how our identity is shaped by our convictions. Right? We have these fixed and firm beliefs that we hold tightly to, and when we have these beliefs, it's going to shape who we are. And, and really what we've talked about extensively is how that identity is really found in Christ and Christ alone, and all these beliefs that center around uh, acknowledging him as having the rule and reign in our lives. Well, at some point, for all of us, our, our core beliefs, our key convictions are going to have some form of an external manifestation, right? They're going to be visible in some tangible way outwardly, that, that our identity is going to be able to be perceived in some sort of external way. Well, one of the things that we have seen through the history of Christianity is the, the way in which we have this external manifestation of these fixed and firm beliefs that, that our identity is found in Christ is through the practice of baptism, right? It's this moment that, that distinguishes us, right? That, that we say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go forward with this because this is a way for me to convey to other people around me that I'm setting myself apart. I'm offering myself to something greater than myself, willing to, to offer myself on the benefit and for the good of others, and so it's that sort of symbolism that we want to just take a moment and reflect upon today. Here, here's my goal for today's service. More, more than this needs to be a sermon that you hear from me, I just want it to be built upon the tangible expression of these families and these individuals that are going through the sacrament of baptism today. And so first and foremost, I hope it's affirming for them, right, for the families that have chosen to be baptized that we're going to celebrate with here in just a minute. For the four families you saw earlier, I hope that this is a service that affirms them and helps solidify this decision and their identity in Christ. I also hope this is a service that speaks to some of you that maybe you haven't had that external manifestation of your identity being found in Christ. Maybe you're still wrestling with, is this, is this someone that I can follow? Is this, a, is this a life that I can truly give myself to? And you've, you've considered 
making that decision or you're considering going through with the act of baptism, I hope today, by the examples of my brothers and sisters, this is something that is an encouragement to you. And yet for all of us, baptism is more than just something we did in the past, right? If you've already gone through this, this journey and you've, you've engaged in this, this symbolic act, well, today's a day to be reminded of what it means, right? The significance that it carries, the, the way in which it stirs all of us to be reminded that our identity is found in Christ, in Christ alone, and that our responsibility as an outward expression of that is to offer ourselves to him and to his glory. And so that, that's my hope for this, this service today and this message that we're going to spend a few minutes looking into. So here's what I want to do. I want to briefly cover, and I mean briefly, uh, just an overview of kind of the history of baptism that we see in the scriptures and how it informs our practice of it here. And, and then after we've had a chance to look at some of those things, we're going to read just a few verses from Romans 6 that give us a picture of what baptism really conveys, okay? So when you, when you think about the history of baptism, you go back to the Old Testament, and, and the Old Testament has always had some sort of language that speaks to purification, right? That there is a cleansing that has to take place to be in the presence of the Lord or to commune with the Lord. And so you see that language consistently through the, throughout the Old Testament. In addition to that, we find numerous examples where water carries a very miraculous and a very powerful act at the hand of God. Right, most notably in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see the flood and we see the exodus. And so there's this moment with, with the flood where God literally purges the earth of wickedness through water. Right? He, he cleanses the earth of, of sin and evil through water in a very challenging way, in a very tragic way, but you see the way that water plays a role in that very significant moment. You fast forward to, from the days of Noah into the days of Moses, and you see that it's through the passing of the Red Sea. Right? Now, they didn't swim through it, right? So there wasn't a literal getting wet, but there was still a, a passage through water that allowed them to be set free, right? that allowed them to, to no longer have the chains of captivity upon them. And it's in that freedom, through that miraculous act, that we see God once again restoring his people. And so there's this imagery of water in addition to this, this practice of purification and cleansing. Now, somewhere along the way, we see other symbols that kind of contribute to it. You go to 2 Kings 5, and you see Naaman, who's, who's plagued with leprosy, who goes down and he dips himself in the Jordan to, in order to cleanse himself, cleanse himself of that leprosy. And so we have all these different symbols, and scholars can't exactly pinpoint when exactly it develops, but at some point, it becomes a ritual. It becomes somewhat of an act of cleansing, a ceremonial washing, and, and really begins to be applied for those that would want to convert and begin to adhere to a Judaic faith, which was rare because typically Judaism was, was viewed as a people, right? People set apart, but you still had this avenue where if those that wanted to, to place their belief in their uh, laws, their traditions, they could go through this ceremonial washing that was comparable to baptism. So, so that was kind of the, the history that John stepped into is John the Baptist. And what's his message? Well, his message is one of repentance. For the kingdom of heaven is here. It's, it's on its way. There is one greater than I who is, who is following me. I'm here to prepare a way. And so all these people begin to repent, wanting to be cleansed from their wickedness, cleansed from their sins, and to be set apart, right? To be distinguished, to be a part of this messianic community, those that were awaiting the Messiah. And so John begins to prepare this way, uh, heightening and giving even more meaning to this, this practice of this washing and this cleansing 
And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus takes it to levels that we couldn't have even comprehended in the moment. Right? Number one, he himself is baptized. It's just really remarkable in and of itself he, on, on a couple different levels. One is that he, he's willing to go to those links to identify himself with humanity. Right? Though he was not sinful, he knew no sin, he, he demonstrates the level to which he, he steps into our brokenness and, and identifies with the brokenness of mankind by actually being baptized. But he also does it as a model. Right? He says, anyone that's going to follow me, this is, this is in order for them to fulfill that call of righteousness that I'm going to place on their lives. And so he demonstrates to others this, this act and the importance of being baptized to the point that when it comes time for him to ascend to heaven right after the resurrection and he gives his final instructions in Matthew 28, what does he say? He goes, I want you to make disciples. This is your task. This is your call. And there are three things within this instruction that, that explain to us how we make disciples. Number one, we go. Right? We, we go to the nations. And what do we do? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them to obey. And so as a result, the practice of baptism became one of the most significant symbols of the early church. Pentecost arrives and Peter stands there in front of his his brothers and sisters, and he says, God has taken this Jesus of Nazareth and he has accredited him with many miraculous signs and wonders. And so make no mistake that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. And the response from the people is, what then should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And on that day, more than 3,000 were added to their number, which shows us this, this practice of baptism really was somewhat of an initiation into this community of faith, right? Into this, this brother and sisterhood that became uh, forged around this common cause. And it was this outward expression that they wanted to be set apart because their identity was in Christ. And so it's this really remarkable progression that makes it such a critical foundation for the followers of Jesus. Now, I want to take a, a brief moment and address a, another aspect of it that we saw here today. At Pentecost, Peter says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. And we see this promise being offered not just to individuals but to families. And numerous times throughout the scriptures, we see people and their households coming in, finding their identity in Christ. And so here's what's happened over time. And, and we could really go in depth in it if we wanted to, but for the sake of time, I'm not this morning but obviously, for, for some of you, you're, you're probably aware that other denominations and other practices of Christianity have embraced the idea of infant baptism. Okay? I, I grew up in a tradition like that. And, and a lot of that practice and belief is, stems from this idea that the gospel is for a family. Okay? So the first thing I would tell you is that if you ever engage in a conversation about baptism and you have a conversation with somebody that has a different approach to it, don't forget we're all on the same team. All right? I, there have been too many times where it didn't feel that way in my own life. Right? Seek to understand. Seek to have loving questions and understanding. Don't, don't condemn because of different practices. Just seek to understand because it was a meaningful thing for my family. But over time, I would tell you as I studied the scriptures and thought of my own life, I, I walked away with a different practice of what I see. And that's kind of what has been on display for you here today. That when it comes to children, 
we believe in more of a covenantal relationship between the family and the church, right? That, that's the, the commitment that is being made. And so we refer to that here in this church as a dedication. And you saw it on display with Caroline asking these families, hey, do you make this commitment and them affirming it by saying, yes, we do. And then an affirmation from the congregation saying, yes, we agree to be this, this church family that is going to nurture and love this child and these families that are in, in our care. So it becomes a covenantal relationship. What we define as baptism is more of a baptism by immersion for believers. And there's a reason for that. Number one is we, we believe in the idea of, of somebody making a personal choice to say, yes, my identity is in Christ. I, I believe in the lordship and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have a specific age when that is necessarily possible, but when it seems to be evident in someone's life, whether they're 7, 17, or 70, that's a decision we want to celebrate. In addition to that, we believe in the significance of immersion because of the symbolism in the image that it creates, right? That it creates a very amazing and significant picture of the gospel. And that's really what I want to dive into for just another few moments is what is this picture of baptism that we're about to witness? And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6. And I'm just going to make a couple of observations in this chapter. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. Romans is one of my favorite letters that we have in all of the scriptures. And, and he's been on this progression, really unpacking the fullness of the gospel when he gets to chapter 6. And, and he begins to talk about the implications that it has on our lives. Here's what he says, starting in 6, verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. A love this passage. It, it is one of the most remarkable passages that teaches us the beauty of baptism. So just a couple of things. First of all, what is the image that it creates, right? What is the symbolism that we see Paul explain here in Romans chapter 6? The first is that when we engage in the practice of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, it communicates a message that our lives are united with Christ. I love that phrase that we see there. There is this unification. It, it literally means to be fused together, right? We become one with Jesus. Our identity is cloaked in the gospel. Right? That, that is the statement that is being made. I'm uniting my life 
to Jesus Christ. Now, the symbolism that we see in the practice of baptism is to say that I'm actually going to unite myself first and foremost in his death. So when we actually submerge somebody under the water, it's, it's symbolic of Jesus being laid in the ground, right? The crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. We are united with him in his death. But then when we, when we bring somebody up out of the water, it's saying that I'm now united in his resurrection. It, the image of, of a believer's baptism by immersion, it, it just brings us back to the heart of the gospel. <clears throat> it is incredibly symbolic in that regard, right? It, it brings us back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that signifying moment that changes the very essence of our identity. And so that's the image that we're saying. We're saying, hey, in the same way that Jesus died, I'm going to be united with his death in hopes that I'm also united in his resurrection as well. So when we engage in this act, we're, we're talking about this unification, this two becoming one, this fusing together with Jesus, that he is our identity. Now, what are the implications of such a unifying moment? Well, there are several, right? The first is this dying to self, right? It's this idea that the old is gone. What I would highlight for us this moment is that, what is it Paul says, I think, in verse 6, that, that you would be done with, that you would put it away. Uh, another way to read that more literally is that it would become inactive. Your old way of life is done. It becomes inactive. There is nothing else that you begin to, to base your identity on in this old way of life, this old way of wickedness and sin. It is gone. It is completely different. You die to it in the same way that Jesus died for you. And yet at the same way, you were raised to walk in a new life. Now what I love about that phrase, that term that's used there is new, it doesn't mean new in time. It means new in nature. Right, so it's not like we're saying, hey, from this moment forward, right, I, I, I'm no longer going to be bad. Right? It's, it's saying I'm actually a new creation. Right? I, I have a new nature. Now, now how is that achieved? Right? How, how do we experience this death to sin but this new nature? Now, part of what we need to understand is being taught here is it's not that, that we never sin again. Right? And I think all of us could testify to that fact, right? You can just turn the page to Romans 7 and see that even Paul himself can testify to that fact. So there's something greater that's being stated here when we talk about this, this new creation that is being accomplished in our identity in Christ. What is, what is really being accentuated here, especially if you look into chapter 5, is that the message Paul is trying to say is, listen, sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. And all of us are descendants of Adam, and so we all struggle with this body of sin and death. But salvation has entered the world through one man, and that is Jesus Christ. And so the external expression of baptism says, I am no longer identified and, uni and unified with Adam. I am now unified with the one who brings salvation, right? And so sin, it's not that it won't still create struggles for me, but it no longer has mastery over me. I'm new. I'm born of the Savior. He is my identity. That's the statement that is being made, and it's a very significant um, reality for you and I to acknowledge, right? It, the implications are that we're set free, right? This, this way of sin, it, we'll struggle with it from time to time, but it no longer has mastery over us. We find salvation in Christ, in Christ alone, so the implications 
of this sort of expression are significant. And, and when we think about the image and the history of baptism and what it means for the church, here's the response that I want to conclude with this morning. Right, and this is the message, I think, for all of us. When, when Paul kind of paints this beautiful picture of what baptism is and he gives us this summary, he says, therefore, count yourself. Right, reckon yourself. Conclude that. Understand who you are. Have, have a clarity of your identity and what this really means. And our response is to offer ourselves, every part of ourselves, to the instruments of righteousness. That's the task. That's the challenge and the invitation for those that are being baptized today. That's the challenge for every single one of us in this room who have decided to find their identity in Christ. That we would offer every part of ourselves as instruments of righteousness. You know, that word instrument in other contexts can be translated as weapon. I love that. Right? That we, in this new identity, in this new creation, we become a force against darkness. We become a force against wickedness. We, we become something that God can use to reveal his glory, which has always been his intent from the very beginning. Right? He wants to use this as a weapon, as an instrument for his righteousness. And so what we have to do is offer ourselves. And that idea of offering, it, it conveys this sense that there is this inner resolve, there is this conviction of surrender, right? That I'm going to say, here I am, Lord, send me, take my life, and let it be used for your glory. Let me be set apart, willing to give myself to something greater than who I am for the benefit of others. Yes, even to the point of laying down my own life. And so when we think about this moment and we see our brothers and sisters engage in this sacred, timeless act, the question that should be on all of our minds today is, what are you offering yourself to? It's not a one-time decision. It's not just something you do when you're 12 or when you're 13 or when you were growing up. No, every single day you have the chance to have your feet hit the floor and say, I'm going to offer every part of myself to be an instrument for God's righteousness. And that's the word of encouragement for everyone here today. When we see these examples of these two wonderful young individuals, may we be stirred to join them in that commitment and today and tomorrow say, I'm gonna offer myself to something greater than me. I'm gonna offer myself to the risen king because I know that my identity is found fully in him and in him alone. So that's the word of encouragement for us today. That's the message that we wanna have in our mind let me pray for us for a moment, and then we're going to actually visit with these few families before we engage in the practice of baptism. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful for this reminder of what baptism really means. And we would ask that you would once again give us the opportunity to celebrate with one another what it is that you're doing in our lives, that our identity would be found in you and in you alone. We thank you for the chance to be reminded of this beautiful, symbolic message that takes us back to the essence of the gospel. May all of us leave here today in a spirit of joy and celebration, encouraged by the way in which you bring us from death to life. You make us a new creation that we might be, offer, be able to offer ourselves fully to you. May that be our commitment. May that be our resolve both today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.